All right, in this podcast, I'm going to be talking to Kelly Yamashiro, who is a senior instructional designer in the office of the Comptroller of the Currency for the federal government. So this is going to be a government perspective on learning design. Um, I think that you'll both see a lot of similarities in the way that learning design is done in higher education. Um, and, and also, you know, just from a process and model standpoint, as well as what her team structure is, and you'll hear some of the, um, the, the roles in her organization that mirror very much, you know, what we do within World Campus Learning Design. So that's pretty interesting, but there are some differences in the way that they have to think about uh, government regulations and funding and, and things like that. Um, so I think it's a good listen. Kelly's a very smart person and, and very knowledgeable about the space and really um, has a lot of understanding of uh, learning theory as well as um, is very reflective of the practice of learning design. Um, so I think you'll I think you'll enjoy this one. We're joined today by Kelly Yamashiro. Uh, thank you for for talking with us today. My pleasure. Okay, so I'm wondering if you could uh, just start by talking a little bit about yourself, what your background is um, in terms of your education, and then um, maybe some kind of aspects of your career history, just to give us an understanding of who you are from a professional standpoint. Sure. So um, my, my bachelor's is in psychology. I have a master's in library and information studies. And then my um, doctorate is in instructional systems. And then my background as far as like prior work experience, um, it's, I guess it's a nice mixture because uh, I have back, uh, experience in internships in private industry. Um, but also, um, while I was in my doctoral program, I also was able to do like an instructional design graduate assistantship um, in academia and the university setting. Um, and then after that, I think the breadth of my at least instructional design experience has been in the federal government. And that can range from um, designing instruction, um, being a training officer, so helping people uh, identify their needs, um, training needs, and procuring training, and then also um, actually being a trainer, so a technical trainer. Mm -hmm. I, I'm always interested in people's educational background and how they sort of get into instructional design, and, and, it's, and it's rarely a straight path through sort of an education curriculum. A lot of times people are coming from different angles. And I think psychology seems like a logical um, foundation for education, but, but I'm wondering, did, did your interest in education um, start to manifest while you were thinking about psychology in the mind or that it was the psychology in, in service of understanding education? Um, so that's, uh, that's interesting because psychology is so broad, right? Um, and I, I mean, really, I was interested in so many aspects of psychology. I liked the sports psychology. I liked industrial organizational psychology. Um, obviously, 
uh, anything to do with learning and cognition. So um, I, I really thought I was going to uh, put that to use more uh, in a career of counseling, like in secondary education. Um, so, but it didn't go that way and I, I, I'm fine with it not. It, it actually led me into the library science area um, where I found that I was um, more drawn to um, helping people with their information needs. Um, and I got a lot of instructional experience there, teaching people how to use resources, etc. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I didn't look back as far as uh, not going into the counseling area. And, and it was just a natural jump then, I think, to instructional systems because I was doing, you know, I was creating reference guides and job aids and and answering people's questions and training people on how to, so it, it just, I mean, literally, I think I was an instructional designer before I actually got <laughs> for any formal education on it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that all served as a really kind of useful foundation for, for getting an instructional design. Um, so, so let's, so that's just some, some background information and maybe now we can sort of jump into currently what you're doing within the federal government. And, I, and I'm particularly interested in, you know, the peculi peculiarities of doing design in this particular, um, this particular con uh, context. So I'm wondering if you could kind of dig into your job right now and, and what you're doing and, and some, maybe some aspects of the government setting that are relevant. Sure. So currently I, um, I'm working in a bureau of the Department of Treasury, the U.S. Department of Treasury. Um, the bureau is called the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. <laughs> it's a long agency name, uh, but we're like pseudo government, so we're not appropriated um, by with taxpayer money. Um, our funding comes from the assessments that we charge the banks that we regulate and supervise. So. Uh, we have about, I want to say, a little over 3,000, um, maybe even close to, maybe even more than 3,500 um, employees nationwide. Um, the bulk of, of, or the majority of our employees are bank examiners. So they come from the field of, of finance and accounting, um, but definitely have a business background and um, there really is no major in that in bank examination. Um, so we have a commissioning program and that takes about anywhere from four, five, you know, even up to maybe six, seven years to wow. complete and um, until they actually become a certified or a commissioned national bank examiner. So for us, we, we uh, regulate national banks and federal savings associations and so the obviously from that the bulk of the training that we develop in-house is all <laughs> about um, bank regulation and that can be anything from um, you know knowing about the market capital markets to how to write and communicate um, specifically for bank examination uh, anti-money laundering and terrorist financing, um, compliance with 
laws and regulations, um, you know, fair lending and fighting for the consumer, as well as even information technology in the banks. So there's so many things that the examiners have to go into the bank and um, examine and make sure that the bank is safe and sound um, and rate them. So they, they, they literally have to have a very good foundation. And then from there, they can start to, a lot of them will start to specialize um, or move into our larger, our larger banks. So um, it, it is, uh, I guess, it is a very specific government setting um, because, you know, we're, um, again, while we're, while we're government, we're, our funding is coming from the bank assessment. So we don't shut down when the government um, shuts down. And uh, what, but there are other treasury bureaus that will do that because they're not, appro um, they're appropriated with taxpayer funds. So the thing is that, you know, we still have to be very um, mindful of our, our resources. Um, and everything, especially with our current leadership, is about efficiency and effectiveness. So uh, it's it's actually within the last, I want to say last year, 12 to 18 months. Um, we're really looking now at our training and trying to see um, what we can do to um, to flip a lot of our class, convert a lot of our classroom-based courses that require travel on the part of the instructor or on the part uh, as well as the part of the participants um and you know how can we make that more virtual we've been we've been doing virtual classroom training and a lot of e-learning but it's it's now come to the point where um they're saying we you know we don't we're not going to get funding for for certain uh training that is classroom based so we'll have to you know so everyone's kind of scrambling to um, figure out how to rapidly convert um, mm -hmm. some classroom courses and, and even just I think that's the thing that really helps us innovate is to think outside of the box. So I, I just in fact converted um, uh, a proposal was accepted where it was this uh, two, two and a half three day classroom based course that was all about um, effective writing for examiners. So written communication for our first year um, cohort groups that come in, new hires. And um, because it's a very different way of writing, they have to write inductive. And a lot of times they're used to writing deductive, <laughs> using deductive reasoning um, and uh, just active versus passive. So it, it, is a, it is different for them to write this way. So we, um, we've been bringing them in and to the classroom. Now we're thinking of different ways of how to do that. And what was accepted as a proposal was a smattering of things. So a lot of, I guess you would say it's a blended learning solution where um, in their field offices, since they're located nationwide, um, they all have like a mentor training team leader for the first eight, six to eight months. So that person can provide like a quick in-person, maybe 90 minute presentation, some exercises. We are um, gonna have them do some e-learning assessments. Um, and from there then we'll be able to um, 
provide any type of remedial e-learning training in that uh, written communication area. Um, we've identified competencies and created a competency model for that. So we've aligned all of that training, uh, all of the training that we are proposing to it. And then they'll be assigned really a coach who will be a writing coach who will help them through their first, uh, well, first month two to like month 10. And so uh, it's a really different way of, of thinking about this whole coaching program. It's, um, and it's, so it's something that we've actually uh, really been having to do a lot of change management around because uh, the banking industry in general is very traditional. Um, as much as they have like banks have very innovative uh, products, the banking industry itself is is so traditional that you know they're used to the classroom training. It took a while to get them into e-learning, um, and I guess maybe a little bit of that can also be said of the federal government um, that a lot of it is still majority is probably still um, classroom-based training and. Uh, you know, it's only maybe within the last few years that they've actually, agencies have actually started to move to virtual classroom space and more e-learning development and um, video development and micro learning and things like that. But uh, we're, we're, we are um, at least finally getting to that point where we can provide these different solutions and it's, it's being uh, at least upper management is accepting this and, and we can um, go forward and, and do good things with it. Yeah, what, what are so that's it's really interesting transformation that you're going through. Um, I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit on some of the specific considerations that you have maybe in the context of the of the you know the proposal that you're talking about in terms of transitioning something from a classroom to the virtual environment in the government setting. I mean, in the classroom, obviously these are, you mentioned the cohorts, so these are pre presumably people that you, who you get to know over time and, and work right. with over a pretty extended amount of time and shifting that into the virtual. So is there, are, in terms of the learning or the, the relationships, what's what things you're thinking about? Yeah, um, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, there, at least for this particular um, proposal, they are, for the first six to eight months, they're still with their cohort training team that they onboarded with um, in each of their field offices. And so, um, you know, they're, they're not losing that. Um, there is, uh, there is we, we do have to be mindful, I should say, of that for any training that occurs after they leave there training teams, but because we have heard them say that, oh, you know, this is going, this is a virtual class offered in a virtual class. Um, I really like it when, you know, they can, they feel like they can come together uh, in a classroom and kind of network and then network face-to-face -face with the instructors. Uh, so we, we still have to be mindful and um, we recently upgraded our LMS. We use success factors. And so we're trying to uh, see if we can use some of the elements. Um, unfortunately, we don't have control because we're in the Department of Treasury. 
Treasury is, is the one who procures our LMS. And so while we can say we would like to have these discussion boards and these mm -hmm. other elements, collaborative elements, um, if it really, if the other bureaus are not in, not moving in that direction or don't want to move in that direction, then we don't, we end up not purchasing that particular component of the LMS, which is unfortunate. And then we have to do something on our end um, at OCC to, to figure out how we can do that. So uh, yeah. I, I think, I, yeah, I, I, I know we wanted a much more, we, we wanted a social learning space. Um, and I, unfortunately, we didn't, unfortunately, Treasury didn't purchase that for us. So we're going to have to now think of uh, what other tools and technology we have um, that we can, we can utilize that because yeah, the, the whole collaborative, I mean, they, they say that even if, even if we just offered classroom, the, the way that a lot of them will um, the, the pre-commissioned examiners is what we call them. A lot of times we'll, they'll learn by obviously asking someone that, you know, they had a previous class with, something like that, especially if they don't have um, an experienced examiner who's readily available. Um, so it's, it's, you know, yeah, we, we do pay attention to that. I, I can't, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, a year or two from now, you know, if we have an established space where we've actually created some collaborative learning space um, for, for, these, for these cohorts. So, yeah, and that, that's, that, it ties into a, a theme that, that in, this, in this course, which is, um, you know, you have many ideas as an experienced learning designer, um, and you sort of form this picture in your head about the learning experience that you want these people to go through, but there's a lot of things that constrain those ideas. So you might want to do some certain level of social learning. That's mm -hmm. the tools or the whatever, the intricacies of working in your space constrain you and you sort of have to think around them and try to still have a successful training program. Yes. Uh, it, yeah, it is. I mean, so sometimes it is funding and, um, but I will have to say that even when we, when we had, uh, you know, I, I can, I, I remember first coming here and there was um, an excess of money where, you know, we're like, oh, what are we, gonna, what, what can we buy? What are we going to do with this? And it was, um, you know, even if we wanted to move in certain directions, if um, the upper management or if just the culture of the organization is not ready to move, then, you know, we just can't do it. So, uh, you know, you can take baby steps and, um, and make prototypes and, and things like that. But the good, I think the good thing is within the last um, 18 months, we stood up what we call our examiner development committee. And they are, um, they are managers, um, usually at a high level, who represent um, the various supervision, bank supervision lines and business units within our organization. And 
they, in their charter, they came up with a vision and guiding principles. And in there, it was, you know, we were pleased to see that they agreed to a vision where there would be collaboration, there would be on-demand learning. Um, we would need to do a lot um, on uh, regarding like structured on-the-job training. So, you know, it was, there was both the formal and informal and a blend of that. And so it, it was nice to see that there, the vision of what we have always wanted to do is now something that um, there really has a strong backing for with these leaders in the organization. So now when we put forward a proposal, we check it against those guiding principles and the vision um, because obviously they'll, they are good about calling us out on the carpet if you know something doesn't really uh, align to those guiding principles. And, um, and if it doesn't, there would have, I mean, there's always exceptions then, you know, it would have to be something that um, from like an instructional standpoint or an, or a business case or organizational need um, is what is what is, is, is making that particular training solution um, a little bit different. So the, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's really been um, like a breath of fresh air since that came about at the same time we we have been inundated with um projects because of that because now it's like being fire hosed with mm -hmm. um you know before it was almost like pulling teeth now we have so many projects to the point where this committee is um this committee is responsible for approving any projects um they are also responsible for prioritizing and i think that becomes that's where they're finding uh, the biggest issue. They, they've been approving a lot of projects, but it's now coming to, well, which is more of a need. <laughs> and yeah, yeah and, and then that's where um, almost like if you compare it to a university setting, I mean, if each college says, well, I need this <laughs> training, right. and yeah, what, what do you take first? I mean, you know, because they all can provide very good justification, so. Yeah. I, and this this part of it's really interesting to me. You, you keep talking about these proposals, and I'm wondering, I, there's some similarities with higher education and, and how programs are proposed and how courses are proposed, and we have faculty senate, and we also have budgetary constraints that we need to think about. But I'm wondering if you could briefly talk through this proposal process, and and, and, and is the bulk of your work mediated by proposals that need to get accepted is, is that how the is that the exchange that's going on on a regular basis yeah so I should say that um, we have basically two avenues or streams that where uh, a proposal is accepted and we intake it as a project and we create a project plan for it and we dedicate resources to it training resources and SMEs um, to design uh, whatever 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 the deliverables are the one is through this examiner development committee we call them the EDC and their focus is just on our bread and butter the examiner workforce um, but 
we obviously have a lot of support staff, attorneys, IT, um, accountants, <laughs> and so administration, uh, administrative uh, staff. So they also have needs as well. Um, and they will oftentimes those those uh, lines or business business lines will come and approach our um, our training department. We're called continuing education. They'll approach us. Uh, oftentimes, it's my uh, manager, and they'll say, "Hey, we we want this." Uh, and of course, then there's the discussion of really identifying: is it a training need, and do they? really need to use Adobe Connect for this webinar or is can it just be a you know Skype? Mm -hmm. But so it's it's all of that discussion happens and um if we can resource it and we can meet their deadlines then we intake it. It it it's only recently that I think we've been saying we've been starting to say no like if if they can't provide SME resources, obviously we can't we can't work on it. Um, but if we don't have the resources, often it's oftentimes um, in my department, like every designer, um, we also have AV specialists. You know, the AV specialists um, are all tapped. We also have programmers, instructional developers. They're all tapped, and so it ends up becoming well, we can do this, but we won't be able to work start work and and complete this until this time frame so um you know it's it, it it does become a balance and our examiner workforce is really um what we're focused on and so we work in partnership with that with the educational i mean the um examiner development committee and we have um our our director is a co-chair um, of that committee. So uh, that's really where the bulk of our projects come from. Um, but then we have, I don't want to say side projects, but we have all these other projects that uh, really are targeted at our support staff, as well as the entire agency. So mandatory training like ethics, prevention of sexual harassment, um, you know, any type of um, something that federal employees must take training on either annually or every summer and every other year, summer every two years, I mean, every three years. So uh, we also are responsible for um, creating any new mandatory training as well as updating um, mandatory training. So uh, that we know we always will have in our, our basket that we'll have to take care of um, whatever's been designated for that year since it, you know, it's required by all employees, information security, privacy, just all of those things. Right. Uh, yeah. So I'm wondering, because of the particular nature of the, the content that you work with, I mean, you're talking about you know, terrorist funding and, and harassment and other, and other topics. I'm wondering, kind of given the things that you're focusing on that have a certain amount of gravity to them, I'm wondering if you could in that context, uh, talk a little bit about your relationship with your subject matter experts and and sort of what does that relationship look like and what is the particular goals that you have? How does that factor into that relationship? Yeah, I've been lucky. I've had very good 
um, relationships with my subject matter experts here. And I would say that, um, you know, the number one thing to me that I found, especially when I work on any projects that dealing with bank examination, because I don't have a finance background, obviously, but is really, I, I really have to do my homework, come prepared with my questions so they can see that, you know, I've taken the time mm -hmm. to really understand the source materials that they've given me, the reference documents that I've gone through and maybe even started um, an outline or some design uh, work papers and coming with my questions to say, well, this, you know, how does this relate to this? So they, um, so it, you know, and then I find that there, and maybe this is why they oftentimes volunteer um, to be subject matter experts is because they like the, the teaching instructional aspect. So they're not, a lot of times I find them to be, um, very accommodating in terms of, uh, you know, wanting to even teach me as an instructional designer, like mm -hmm. about the subject matter. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I think to me, that's one of the, the big things is really to just do, do the homework. Um, and they in turn will, will respect you more because when they start throwing out the acronyms and the terminology, you know, you'll have a, a better understanding of that, but then you'll also know when to say, oh, wait, I don't, you know, can you explain that concept to me? I don't recall seeing that in, you know, anything that um, we've either discussed before or that, um, that I've read in the source documentation or reference documentation. Um, so it's, uh, the good thing is I like being able to have, um, being able to work on different subject matter, it, even though they might all be around bank examination, you know, to work on one topic versus another, it, it, the variation to me is, uh, it, it actually makes the job more pleasurable. It, it provides me an opportunity to learn, um, you know, about, about a topic that I would have probably never, <laughs> never learned about if, um, you know, if I wasn't in this position. So, I, I would say that's number one. The other thing too is the flexibility. Um, instructional design obviously, you know, has a system that there's a systematic process. You, I think a lot of designers will learn, okay, this is, these are all the steps that you need to do um, to be successful as a designer. And to me, you have to really assess the situation you're in. Um, the, the SMEs oftentimes have no idea what instructional design <laughs> is mm -hmm. or what instructional designers do um, or what they, can no, bring to, just us. <laughs> <laughs> what they can bring to the table. So it's, um, you know, I, I think the thing is you're, you're always kind of, um, constantly proving your worth that, you know, no, I know what I'm talking about here uh, mm -hmm. without, without sounding like uh, an, you know, an academic, like saying, well, the research shows. Right. <laughs> um, so, and, and explaining things in very plain language, um, but being, I think the flexibility is something they appreciate a lot. So, okay. What a good example is, um, 
we're creating a lot, developing a lot of competency models now for our different, um, uh, different technical bank examination competencies. So um, we have, you know, a workforce group, workforce planning group that has developed their competency models specific to around workforce planning. We're doing it more from training and the standpoint of using it for training and development. So we want these competency models so we can identify where are the gaps in our curricula, where are um, the misalignments occurring, and um, how to best then address and close those gaps. And it, it helps, it, it, it really helps to then look at those competency models and the timing and when they need to get to different proficiency levels to build in the, to build a learning solution that aligns to that. And so um, I think when, it, with these competency models, I was in this working, like a week long working group. I had worked with um, a SME to come up with this competency model specifically around, okay, written communication skills just for the first year of uh, the commissioning program. And then I was then I was given a second set of a second set of SMEs, um, and I should have known this was going to happen. Where I had laid out my agenda and said, "Okay, the purpose of our working meeting is to identify the gaps, the misalignments, come up with the recommendations, and develop a plan of action." Well, um, on day one, there was there were some, some things that the SMEs, these new group of SMEs were saying, I don't agree with where that proficiency level is, or um, I don't agree you know, with that competency, shouldn't it be written this way, or we do this. And so you know, I had to take a step back and just say, you know what, I, I have to suck it up. You know, my entire first day is going to be refining this competency model. So that's what we did. And everyone then, there was consensus, which was great. This was validating the competency model. Um, we got, fortunately, we were able to bring on, bring back the um, SME. She was able to dial in and she's like, yep, nope, I get it. I agree. There was some discussion and then we came to consensus. And then from day two, I could then actually, you know, go through and start saying, okay, now, now that we're all in agreement, now let's identify the gaps. Now let's figure out, you know, how do we blow up this course? How do, you know, what do we do? Um, and so, so this is a group of people that there's one subject matter expert, but you're trying to get consensus across a, a group of people. Yeah, there, there's oftentimes there will be multiple subject matter experts. There might be one lead that you're tasked to work with, but oftentimes they, they do provide um, more than one. So, uh, especially if it's, if you're looking at developing some, especially if you're looking at identifying gaps, coming up with recommendations, um, that is for a particular curricula that spans, let's say four or five years, and there are pockets of specialty there. So not everyone, uh, while, while everyone might have the foundation, there's some SMEs that might specialize in 
a particular aspect of that curriculum that we definitely want to have at the table when um, we're looking at competencies in particular and gaps. So uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, and it's, so it's interesting. I mean, before we had a very difficult time securing SMEs, like we would be asked to develop things and we're like, well, we need the SME support. And it wasn't until this examiner development committee was uh, formed that, you know, their charter says they're going to be the ones who will help resource, uh, devote resources to projects, um, SME resources. So um, ever since then, we haven't had an issue. Um, what we have been asked is obviously to um, provide a good estimate of when and uh, the number of hours that we would need for uh, that we would be needing a SME. And so that prompted us to have to develop um, almost for every type of, <laughs> I don't wanna say for every type, but for a good number of training, typical training solutions, we have a template project plan. So we can say, okay, for a three to five minute video, I'm going to need your SME for this many hours and it's going to be around these particular timeframes. For e-learning, um, for one hour e-learning course, this is about the amount of SME time that we'll need and here's the where the bulk of that will occur. Um, so the management had asked um, us to get to that point. And you know, it was, we were looking at the industry standards um, and what what it would take to, how long does it take to develop e-learning? And obviously that's a whole nother discussion because of uh, the different, you know, depending on the interactivity and things like that. But we had to put parameters and say, okay, if, if someone comes to us and says, I need um, virtual classroom developed and it's, you know, it's typically this many days, then uh, how long will it take from start to finish? Who are the resources? When are the SMEs going to be used? How many SMEs do you, you need from us? Things like that. So um, yeah, we, we can't get started on a project until the intake phase happens. And that intake phase includes identifying specifically the, um, the SMEs and resources that will be used and the amount of time that they'll, they'll be needed because um, the big thing for us, and this is not just for SMEs, but for um, our, our participants, our training participants, and I would assume that this is very, it's the same case in any private corporate environment, is that taking them off the job, while we don't, you know, while we're a government agency and we don't make a profit, um, you know, it's, it's taking them off the production line. And so, um, there, that's the way that they look at it. <laughs> so we, we have to say, well, so anytime we take a resource off the production line mm -hmm. and a particularly an expert who probably has been given a lot of, um, you know, high profile, uh, projects to work on, then, you know, that, that becomes an issue where we have to, sh we have to show, um, the need and that we'll be using them efficiently. Uh, so that, you know, we'll continue to have management support in, in using these folks. It, it, 
but it's I, I will say that yeah it's um it has been um it has been over the last I want to say two I would say 24 to 18 months we've had to really ramp up our processes um templates uh you know or just I mean everything to to get to the point where we're almost like um uh, I guess almost like an in-house, like a production house, you know, so things are just moving from designer to developer. When does the AV need this? Uh, so that we're working on multiple projects and um, uh, people can be tasked with multiple projects because we know, okay, the designer is is working on this project during this time frame. They'll be free here. Is there anything that can be given to them? to use during that one week. Um, can so they start? Are, so are, do you have extra sort of traditional project management um, processes, like formal project yes. management that you're doing with Gantt charts and everything? Yes, we use, um, we have a project manager. It got to the point where um, this was just a person who was coming up on detail. It was actually one of our programmers and um, she she helped us get started. She's now certified as a, a PMP, um, but we use Microsoft Project Server, uh, and all of our projects are in there. We have a dashboard so that um, our examiner development committee, as well as management, at any time can go in and you know see okay what's green, what's yellow, what's red, what's going on, you know, and so they and they can see where how the resources are being used. Um, we, are, we are working towards getting to the point where the, our timesheet submissions, you know, so every two weeks we submit our timesheets. Um, they're all coded by projects. So you, you code your hours to what project you were working on, what phase of that project you were working on, what type of project it is. Um, and we're trying to get to the point where that becomes more aligned to our template project schedules. So if we see that, for example, um, the developer is actually taking twice as long as we, you know, then, and we can validate that that, you know, it's, it's not, it's not some individual, <laughs> um, individual reason for, for that occurring, then we'll, you know, we'll revisit then our process and our templates and go back and, and um, update those hours in our templates. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to be mindful of your time, but I want to make sure that we just take a moment and you, and I think you, you've touched on this a little bit, but uh, in, in doing all of this work, what are some of the considerations that are really specific to a government setting? I mean, are, are there particular regulations or policies or procedures that you have to follow that are specific to government? Um, I would say the, there, I mean, each agency is probably going to have its um, particular policies and uh, when it comes to designing, you know, they, hopefully they have um, some kind of style guide or style standards for, for example, for developing e-learning, et cetera. But the thing for anyone who goes into government, and I would assume it's the same for academia, is this compliance with um, mm -hmm. Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. 
Um, and, you know, just to ensure that uh, those who have any type of disability, visual, hearing impaired, mobility, um, will be able to access the whatever training materials, for, you know, whether that be classroom materials, usually they're all electronic, um, you know, classroom materials, video, e-learning, um, and it, it's, you know, and I, I know that um, when you look at the law, it, you can interpret it different ways, and then that's what we found in benchmarking with other government agencies um, like Health and Human Services and Veterans Administration. Um, it's however that agency decides to interpret it, like the extent to which they'll they'll say, no, you can't do this. For example, no, you, you absolutely cannot do drag and drop. Drag and drop, yes, is not compliant. Mm. But, you know, really then it's up to the agency to say, okay, you you can do drag and drop as long as you provide, let's see, either a branching or a 508 compliant version of that same e-learning course that that doesn't have the drag and drop in it, let's say. So um, that what is what I'm finding. We're having more discussions uh, in my agency around even something as simple as like alt text, alt tags, mm -hmm. you know, um, something that is considered decorative to one person <laughs> is not to another, you know, like, so you have those who say, no, everything, you must uh, provide alt text for everything. Um, and then, you know, there's the other side where, especially if you put your instructional design hat on and you say, well, but what is the purpose or intent you're trying to convey with that image? Um, and how does it go along with the context, uh, uh, with the content that's being provided, the narration and the on-screen text, for example? So, um, you know, it, it makes for a lively discussion because there are definitely strong opinions in both camps and you know it's it's so i think agencies have been having to put together these policies or standards and say this is how we're going to do it um to make things for at least for training compliant um there there usually is um i think i would imagine we have one so i think a lot of other agencies also have um one particular person who is almost like the subject matter expert on section 508 and um, for the whole agency that you can go to and, and uh, kind of get some consultation with and you know they can kind of tell you, well, no, all your videos must be descriptive or, uh, but if they give you some leeway, then now it comes back down to within the training unit, okay, well, you know, there is no policy around that. How do we want to handle it um, so that we're, you know, we're standardized for, let's say, all the video we develop or all the Captivate simulations we develop. Um, so that has been a challenge, too, is to just document and agree upon um, standards, um, especially working with, I mean, the group, the group I have, there's like, you know, um, there's about 13 designers, we have three AVs, we have um, three instructional developers. I mean, everyone has, a, has an opinion about 
um, 508. So it, it can be challenging yeah. sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have a dedicated accessibility folks on my team and that's literally, you know, 90% of what they do is, is what mm -hmm. you're talking about. And it really does impact very specific design decisions that you you make. It's not just sort of general guidance. It's it's really in the weeds in terms of the small decisions that you're making. It's pretty interesting. Yes, yeah. yep. <laughs> and I'm generally, I I don't know if I'm reassured or, or, um, or not about the fact that so much of what you're talking about is very similar in, in the, the makeup of the teams. You, you mentioned some of the different people mm -hmm. that are on your team, the, 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 some of the challenges that you have with subject matter experts. It's very, in so far what I've, what I've come to observe is that in, in the government setting or in higher education or in the corporate world, the, this is all pretty similar and, and really the, the differences are really, um, you know, not, I think that as a, as a, a a, an experienced instructional designer can move between these different industries and be successful. Oh yes, yeah. I think so. I think I think you have as long as you have the foundation, the you you have the experience working with SMEs that will obviously carry over, um, and and you know the more experience you have with with various types of SMEs, you'll obviously sometimes get the very difficult ones, um, mm -hmm. the ones who want mm -hmm. to just who say no, they must know everything <laughs> and give you you know the the whole kitchen sink. I mean, it, yeah, you'll I think as designers, will through experience you learn how to work through that um, and get a lot of lessons learned, obviously, um, when you didn't work through it as well as, as maybe you hoped. But um, I, I do think, yeah, as far as tools, I mean, it, when it comes down to it, to me, as I've moved through from various um, agencies in the federal government, and then even looking back at the internships I've had in corporate, it, um, you know, it's really, okay, they're, they may be uh, have decided upon using specific development tools, um, and that's great if you can bring to the table your you have knowledge in the in whatever Adobe products or Articulate or Captivate etc. products that they're using. Um, but again, you know, there if you know, let's say Storyline versus Captivate, um, you know that. It, it really doesn't matter because you have, there's things that will be common in both. You'll just have to know what the nuances are and when to use one versus the other, maybe if you do have the, if you do have the advantage of actually having both. So I, you know, I, I know in talking to other designers at conferences and in train, in external training that I go to, um, you know, they'll, yeah, it's, it's, we all share a lot of the same experiences. And then it comes, what it comes down to is the very specific policies, mm -hmm. um, as well as, you know, obviously funding can be an issue, um, the culture, uh, and um, I, yeah, I, I think uh, other than that, but you learn how to, you, you learn how to work in that particular environment. I mean, I, I don't, I think I would go kind of crazy if uh, there was um, two women I met in a, at a training and they were saying that, 
you know, they work, they work in the US for a German company. And uh, um, I'm not sure if this is part of the German culture, but this company says that for all your e-learning, um, you must use photographic images, which I've heard that before, but, and all the photos cannot be of anyone looking directly at the learner as wow. they're, <laughs> so <laughs> literally they said, you know, and they're, they're all, they were, um, I mean, I think they're the largest um, elevator maintenance company <laughs> in globally. So they said to find pictures of people with construction hats and, you know, <laughs> they were like, Jeez. you know, who, who's not specific. looking. Yeah, they always have to be looking away or to the side and so they they found that very challenging uh, it was it was interesting so you know they but they do it they they still they said you know they still produce they don't have they, they have a small group so it's not like they have um a photographer like we have av and um we have and they're also um ex experts in photography so if we if we really can't find or we have a need for a very particular shot and it's not something we can find on let's say iStock or some of the other um, e-learning brothers or something like that then yes we'll go we'll work with our AV folks and say I need this particular video I need this particular shot or we need to use the green screen and I because I, I really need this this specific thing for my e-learning or whatever your develop you know whatever the training solution is and I I guess um, you know I others don't have that luxury. I mean, there's people I've met at conferences who are like a training department of one. <laughs> yeah. So they do everything. Um, and that's the reality in some small businesses uh, or in corporate, in corporate America as well, that, yeah, that, that, that's, it's the end all be all. And they kind of learn how to do, let's say, storyline on the job. Yeah. You wear yeah. a lot of different, a yeah. lot of different hats in that scenario. So, so it's not really differences among these different industries. It's not really fundamental differences, but really differences of scale and and type and like you said, culture and funding and things like that. So yes, yeah, that's re that's really interesting. Um, all right. Well, again, I want to be mindful of your time. I really appreciate the conversation and this perspective. It's I think should help people really understand again appreciate some of the similarities and the sort of versatility of the learning designer's skill set, um, but also help them think about, you know, potentially going into the government setting, um, some, some considerations that they might want to take into account. So I appreciate everything you've shared with us, and I think it's uh, really, really interesting. Sure, you're welcome. I hope, right. I hope it, I hope it does help. And if there is any, if anyone who is listening to it has follow-up questions that um, they're dying to have, answer, have me answer <laughs> that's particular to um, my setting, my environment, then I'll be happy to follow up with you. Very cool, I appreciate it. All right, well, thank you, Kelly. You're welcome. Bye.